I understand the frustration of feeling like you need to justify your choices. Explaining your lifestyle over and over and over again because everyone from random strangers to even your own family just doesn't get it. Hey, I'm Allison Conway. That's why I'm here to help you build a profitable business that gives you the freedom to travel and work from anywhere. I've been there. And in this podcast, I'm going to share with you the real actionable how to's so you can finally confidently say it is a real job, dad. This is a soul fire production. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. So we we have so much to talk about. We are in a mastermind group together. So we have a lot of conversations about business and about even travel and, and what we want our businesses to look like and retiring our partners and making lots of money and, you know, (laughs) buying new houses and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, I would, uh, love to talk about your experience with the impacts of tourism industries. You are native to Hawaii. Yes. And um, that's such an interesting perspective because obviously the tourism industry in Hawaii, um, you know, I, I don't even know. Maybe it has some good impacts economically. And I'm sure it also has lots of negative impacts culturally and environmentally and all that stuff. Yes. So, um, you can take off all the filters. You can take off everything. <laughs> everything there is. This is a safe. This is a safe place. This is a non-judgment zone. Um, but what's been your experience with that? What is that? What's that like being native to Hawaii and and watching uh, that kind of a tourism industry? Yeah, well, I think this is this is always going to be a double edged sword because we are such a melting pot. We're the Mm -hmm. melting pot of the Pacific. And so there's there's a perspective of being native to Hawaii and there's the perspective of being native Hawaiian. And so those are two very different points of view. Mm. The, The tourism industry obviously impacts, you know, Hawaii's economy positively we like i don't even know what the percentage is but it's high it's like 40 mm-hmm. to 60 percent or something like that oh, wow. of the dollars that come in here are foreign and so business as we know it would be crippled without the tourist industry just that fact alone this is makes this a, a relatively polarizing topic that is probably yeah. never going to end um and so that's what we experienced when COVID hit. Like we experienced all of the businesses in Waikiki and in Honolulu. A lot of them saw huge drops in attendance, not just because locals couldn't show up, but because there was no tourism flow. Mm-hmm. And so it it would definitely hugely affect our economy. So that's that's as the state stands. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a native Hawaiian, I don't identify as an American. So, mm. you know, we were never legally made part of the United States. We were illegally overthrown and annexed in, you know, 1893. So 
to me, I'm not, I'm just not American. The continent is the continent and we live, this is our, depending on who you speak to, we're Aboriginal or we're Indigenous, but this is our home and this is where we came from. And so because of the illegal overthrow, we were never actually um, legally, we, there was no treaty or anything like that. There was no agreement that we were to be part of the United States. So I personally just do not identify as an American citizen. Mm-hmm. And I don't, at this point, I'm like second and third generation away from the overthrow. And so at this point, this has just been all that I know. This this economy, this lifestyle, like all the tourism, it's just, it's part of the Hawaii that we know. Um, but I, I also have every confidence that we, if we had remained a kingdom, the kingdom of Hawaii, that our monarchy would have done a fine job of handling modern times. And that's the biggest thing that I think people complain about. Even locals, even native Hawaiians down here, like you hear them kind of grumbling with each other because they're like, well, how would we handle the military? How would we handle, like who else would overthrow us? It's, it's, it's better that the United States take us over than like Russia. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, but you can never know, right? Like we're never going to know at this point. Mm-hmm. We were a very, um, evolutionary and progressive people we had contact european first and then from the continent and it was never something that like completely shell-shocked us like we boarded boats we started exploring trade so i have every confidence that our monarchy would have done a fine job but now that that's not a thing we're kind of in this place where we're trying to function occupied and because we're Hmm. occupied and have been for so long and because we have no protections for our our land here even the protections that we have for ceded lands are not honored by the state and so because we have no protections for um for an occupancy and purchasing of our lands so much of our property is being taken up at this point that it's hard to imagine how that would be reversed. Mm. Like without just straight up taking property back from people and kicking them off of their, their own property that they have now purchased. Right. Like there, there's no easy answer for it. So Mm -hmm. the double edged sword that I've heard my whole life is one tourism is critical to the economy, to the state of Hawaii. And two, we're not the state of Hawaii. So like, what would that even look like if we were able to have our own like anonymity or even the ability to govern our own choices as a people? Because at this point in our generation, the generation that I'm in, um, it's really, it's really a lack of knowledge at this point. So in my mom and my grandmother's generation, it was still illegal to speak Hawaiian. When we got taken over, they made it illegal mm, to speak right. Hawaiian. And so a lot of our culture and a lot of our so we like we believe that the language is the culture it's a living culture and so when we when we can't speak it and when it goes underground we lose a lot yeah and so my mom's generation they didn't have as much access as we are now having um regaining to to learn about our culture and things like that so my grandmother 
was a huge part of the effort to demand reparations from the United States. Mm. My mom's generation, she she had no like Native Hawaiian classes. She had no um, Hawaiian history classes in school. Like she had none of that. And so when I say it's a double-edged sword, I mean, I don't actually know what the right answer to it is, but that's the impact that tourism has. It's very polarizing. And I'm sure there's a lot of, or maybe, you know, I'm sure it's different for everybody too, the maybe some resentment in having tourists, you know, around your, the whole year and, and restaurants being what they are and the prices of things being what they are because, you know, a tourist will come in and they're willing to spend a lot more than a local is because it's their vacation. And with the property issue too, I'm, I'm sure it has been argued and could be argued that it was while it is their property because they purchased it, it was never theirs to purchase. Yeah. That's the, that's the, one of the biggest problems that I can see is just how we have so many homeless here. We have, I want to say the worst homeless population. Mm. Um, and so, and it's a lot of local families. We can't afford to live here. Like we were saying that the median home here in Hawaii, we're talking like probably sub 1800 square feet mm-hmm. it's like for 970,000. And I don't know if you have to be a sultan or like <laughs> yeah. uh, what, you, what you have to do for a living to be able to afford that. But, you know, like we didn't start getting paid more mm-hmm. economically. So I... I just see so many local families getting pushed out. We have a lot of like socioeconomical issues here, but the cost of living is, is really high to live in Hawaii because it's considered paradise. And I can understand that. Right. Um, But it's also our home. So when we have to leave, we are leaving our culture. We are leaving our place of birth, like where we are culturally tied we have we have a an association with like the land and the natural resources that a lot of other cultures don't participate in or like western cultures don't necessarily participate in like we i don't really know how to explain it in english but like this is this is very much a part of who we are mm-hmm. and um so seeing so many people have to leave Hawaii to be able to provide for their families without struggling or relying on government assistance has been really difficult to see happen. Um, we're, you know, we have large families. We take mm-hmm. care of each other's families. Like we connect each other's children. And it's like that village mentality gets lost as we grow in population. Our population is relatively big. I think we've got like, we have over a million people on my island alone. Mm. And so it's hard to teach to people who aren't. And not that we don't want to. That's one thing that I can say um, to your to your question of um, how frustrating it is for Native Hawaiians. There are some who are super resentful and angry for sure. Mm-hmm. And there are more of us who just kind of want to be like understood. Mm. but as like we grow and as we struggle to get these resources out, which there's a lot more now, um, 
it just gets hard. It gets hard for it's a it's a little heartbreaking for the people who have to choose to leave yeah. when they don't want to leave. But then but then we're squeezing these giant families. Like I live in a twelve hundred square foot house in kind of a nicer area. Mm-hmm. And like our homes in this neighborhood are going for eight hundred and eighty. And I'm like, do I want to spend that much wow. money for a twelve hundred square foot house with no yard? You know, like do I so it's it's kind of like you know, mm-hmm. my feet in two different worlds, basically. Yeah, I, yeah, that's that's like New York City prices, right? That's like a you know a twelve hundred square foot apartment that sells for a million dollars or just slightly under a million dollars. That's um, that's absolutely insane when you think about, you know, a person chooses to live in Manhattan in the city of Manhattan because you know, their job is there or, or whatever it is that, that they can choose to live in the city of Manhattan. Whereas like, if you're just Hawaiian, if you are just a person who lives in Hawaii is native to Hawaii, you don't, it's not like choosing to live in Manhattan, right? It's not, it's not the same, you know, oh, you're, you, the, um, the like opportunity cost and ratio of what you're willing to pay because you're willing to put yourself in this, the city of Manhattan versus just being a middle-class person who wants to live in the place that they're from. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a a family friend who owns a, a large real estate company here. And so we were just talking about this last week and I asked him how people are being able to afford homes right now in this climate. And he said, it's either people who aren't from here who are purchasing up the homes mm-hmm. and then renting them out or um generational support like family mm. like their family is giving them money and selling their homes so that their children can buy homes and so that you know that's not going to be an option for everyone and the just to kind of give you an idea of how bad the foreign investment scene is here on on Maui are one of our other sister islands, one in three homes is an Airbnb. And so those oh are homes gosh. that don't go to locals, yep. you know, or, or anybody who wants to actually buy a home and live here, those homes are now unavailable. So here on Oahu, I think two years ago, they passed some laws where they like drastically reduced the amount of homes on the market that were able to become Airbnbs. And so it's really helped here. But also it hasn't because this island is the one that grows the fastest. Um, And so that's just, that's part of the more socioeconomical complications that I was talking about. Tourism keeps the the, the economy going, but Mm -hmm. like at at what cost? Like, Mm -hmm. what are we sacrificing for that? And when we saw tourism stop, like when we, when we closed doors to try to control the pandemic here, it was it was a Hawaii like I've never seen before. Like we could go to the beach and like not be within oh, six wow. feet of someone. Like not because of social distancing, mm-hmm. but because there was like room on the beach mm-hmm. and like the waters cleared up. So our waters are wow, kind of nasty. There's like tons of sunscreen and just random mm-hmm. stuff in it. Um, so the the water got cleaner, the air got cleaner. We could walk the streets and not like brush shoulders with people in Waikiki. And so Waikiki is just a huge tourist spot now, but before 
you know, it was, it was not, it was not always like that. And so it was nice to kind of see, it's kind of weird because all the, the shops were boarded up. We have luxury row on Waikiki. So we've got like Tory Burch, Louis Vuitton, right. Um, for Gamo. So like all of those shops are boarded up, but like we could actually just walk around and look around and just see local people. And that's the first time I've ever seen that in my entire life. And it was super surreal. Like it was a little bit like a ghost town, but only because it wasn't a ghost mm-hmm. town. Like yeah. we were just used to like literally rubbing elbows with people. And we could see like the second that tourism opened up because it was just completely flooded out with people again. Right. Right. God, that must've been fascinating to just it was, see yeah. like <laughs> it oceans cleaning up and that, that must've been crazy. Um, I know I've talked to you a little bit about, um, you know, what my values are with travel and why I think travel is so important and educating yourself on cultures all over the world. I have this, this theory, this belief that, uh, if more people traveled and were educated in the, the politics of, of these things, the culture of places and people around the world, there just wouldn't have been space for a, a person like Donald Trump to have become president. <laughs> and I know you roll your eyes, but <laughs> I, I think that if, you know, uh, 18 year old Kyle from rural North Carolina who voted for Trump in 2016, because that's what his dad told him to do. Had he been able to have a conversation with a family in pick any country around the world that our former president called a shithole country, right? You, you just have a conversation with a human being and they stop being the other, they stop being foreign or quote unquote exotic or some other word that's used because you're just confronted with their humanity, right? You just become so much more aware of, you know, Hey, they're just trying to like feed their kids and, and live happily with their family. just like everybody else around the world is. So I think with that kind of education, you know, Kyle from from rural somewhere in the United States no longer has those it's not as easy to find that scapegoat. It's not as easy to say, oh, immigrants are the problem or people of color are the problem or, you know, some other completely ridiculous false narrative. Now having said all that, of course, as a white woman <laughs> who has the utmost privilege and being able to say, oh yeah, just go travel. Right. And, and, oh yeah, just like go to Hawaii, go to South Asia, go to Russia, go to all of these places around the world and educate yourself and learn about these places. There's so much impact, whether it be good because mm-hmm. you're, you're economically, you know, providing jobs, supporting local businesses, politically because you're learning and there's this sort of globalization of, you know, nothing is foreign, nothing is other, Mm -hmm. nothing is unknown. But then also, of course, in in talking to you and your perspective, because there weren't any people in Hawaii, or rather there weren't any tourists in Hawaii, the oceans got cleaned up and you could have, you know, you could walk on the street without like having to, you know, like shimmy your way down the street. So I have a lot of, uh, you know, there is no perfect solution. And I have a lot of concerns 
with even my own message, with even my own value and telling people to go out and travel because there is so much negative that can come out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, so I think that at this point is for us, um, because we have been so colonized, we're, Mm -hmm. we're not as remote or untouched as a lot of other areas of the world. That's a, that's a subjective reaction that you're going to get from people. Overall, um, we are like a really inclusive and peaceful people. Mm-hmm. When we had a lot of contention in the world in 2020, you didn't see that here. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not, it's not because there weren't rallies. It's not because there weren't protests going on here, but it's because of the culture that we, we haven't maintained here. So like even when we do have rallies, there are literally people who will jump in their trucks and like drive up and down the streets during the rallies to make sure that nobody starts fights, nobody starts rioting. Wow. So respect is really an integral part of our culture. And I think that that's an easy, an easy approach for people visiting mm. to, to try to figure out what respect really is. Um, and then just be mindful of it. Like there's, there's going to be ignorance. Nobody, I think, expects people to come and know everything about the culture before they visit. So I think it's really just kind of, um, there's a kind of walking that line of respect and curiosity that I would expect to do when visiting other places as well. People have you know, done things in curiosity. Mm-hmm. But one of the biggest things that I can say is that one, respect is a is a big thing to on a person to person level. Like there are a lot of people who like this is not the states where you can go and flip people off. Someone will chase you down. <laughs> um, they won't honk a horn at you. Like if you honk your horn at somebody on the freeway, it's probably not a local person. But um <laughs> and then there's respect for for our our land yeah and so we're so we're so tied to it that um i think it would be easy for people who aren't aware of it to maybe overlook it because um our land is commodified so heavily here but we were so tied to it it's such a big part of our culture we have names for the winds in like different regions like the mm. live on a valley and there's like five winds that live back there and back in the day they knew them our resources are a huge part of who we are so back when there was all that controversy with the north dakota pipeline like we rallied for them mm-hmm. and some of us flew up there to protest with them on site because we understood what that meant. And I even have cousins, we have a large family. So I would say at this point, there's like probably over a hundred cousins. And cause my grandmother had 12 kids and then they all went and had plenty of kids and their kids all had lots of kids. And so <laughs> we have cousins who don't come from Hawaii who are native Hawaiian. And I actually have a cousin Um, who lives in one of the Dakotas and we kind of had an argument about it because like they couldn't see why it was so important Mm -hmm. and to me it's a no-brainer I'm like no you're kidding right like like we have a mountain here 
and it's ceded land. It's sacred land to us. There's like actual history where you can be like, okay, the ships came over in this year from Eurasia or whatever. And mm-hmm. like you can track that through archaeology. And then there's, you know, Hawaiian mythology, which a lot of people, even if they don't all in believe respect, we all respect it. And so we believe that this place was the birthplace of, of us. And they're trying to build the world's largest telescope on it. Oh my God. And it would go down. I forgot like 12 stories steep into, into it. That was an act of desecration. And so there's still people living up there, but we literally, I flew up several times. It's on a different Island. It's on Hawaii Island, but we like, there's tents lined up there. People were chaining themselves to the, the, the rails in the ground to block the construction crews um and this is still ongoing in court like there's still a lot going on but i think it divided a lot of people not just here in hawaii but like i missed work to go up there Mm -hmm. and like be a part of it and feed the people up there and make sure that i was you know doing what i could um you probably like, I wouldn't be surprised if people heard about it. A lot of celebrities went up there, like The Rock was there and Jason Momoa was up there and everything yeah. like that. But um that was a no-brainer for me. Like it was just like yeah. why why is that something that you would even consider doing? Like I don't really care about looking at stars. You should care a little bit more about taking care of what we have going on right now, like here, you know? Um and so that something that's like second nature to me, I think isn't going to be second nature to someone even who's, who's native Hawaiian, like my cousin, Mm. who's like, why is this such a big deal? Like it's a pipeline. It's going to be more efficient. I'm just like, if you can't understand why like irreparably damaging the earth is a problem, then this is not a conversation that we're going to have an easy conversation. It's, it's not an easy because it's not, it's not so much opening perspective and conversation about things that people might not be aware of it's a complete um shift in in belief and lens and the way we see the world which is why um banning our language is so crippling was because Mm -hmm. um it's tied to the way that we live it's tied to the the values that we live out um language is a living thing i don't know how to describe it because it doesn't really translate into english very well but um there, there's just all these things that create like an essence of a people mm-hmm. and it's hard to communicate that. Yeah. I'm having a hard time articulating it right now. Yeah. And um, so it's not a secret society. It's just <laughs> not easy to understand for people who don't live it. And, you know, I'm learning how to continue to learn more about it now mm-hmm. that there's more access to education for me. And teach my children about it. And it's not, it's not really easy because I'm having a hard time finding the words. I'm having a hard time explaining it to them when they're also learning, they're going to go to school and they're going to learn about like business and finance and I don't know, geometry, home ec. I don't (laughs) know. Yeah, I obviously didn't pay attention to those classes, but um, (laughs) yeah. So, well, you can't tell because you also have a very successful business, but we'll get into that in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) And when you say they wanted to build this, do you mean the American government? 
Yeah, state of Hawaii. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think that it can be overstated enough that the state of Hawaii does not align with Native Hawaiian values. I'm just, I really think people need to know that because the state of Hawaii sanctions something does not mean that Native Hawaiians do. Usually we don't actually. Wow. So that's an interesting, what do you think the disconnect is there? Do you have any insight to that or money? Money. Yeah. It's always money. Of course. A hundred percent money. There's a lot of grants for the telescope, for example, Mm -hmm. um, UH University of Hawaii leases the land there for like a dollar a year. The military goes up and blows stuff up around, you know, the islands all the time doing testing. We have so much military here because, you know, the United States decided it was really important, but it contributes to our housing issue. It um, contributes to economical issues that we have because we're considered overseas for them, which mm. should say something about the United States, but <laughs> they consider us overseas. And so they get an extra stipend to live here. Cost of living goes up. So they get extra money to live here, but we don't, we don't get a stipend to live here. Oh my gosh. And so they're buying, a, you know, there's a lot of property that they can purchase and there's a, and, and I'm being very broad here of, there are of course military families that I know who also struggle financially here. Mm-hmm. Um, people who come to Hawaii from other states are most likely not going to be prepared for the cost of living here. But yeah, I also know that they get, you know, housing allowance that we don't have. They get all these things that, that help them live a decent quality of life while here. But, um, it's a quality of life that we work really hard to achieve as well. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. So money, always money. Yeah. And it's interesting when you have to supplement the income for your own military to be able to survive and live in Hawaii. That's saying that says a lot, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. We went housing shopping back, back last year, actually. We were like, yeah, let's just buy a house. It feels like a good time to buy a house. So we went and we met so many people who were you know, selling homes because they're preparing to ship out. And this one person really um, caught my eye. So he, he was a single male, mm-hmm. really nice person. So we were able to like really talk to him. He had a line of over two dozen people standing in the sun to see his house Wow! because yeah. supply and demand here. And so we, we were able to talk with him. He mm-hmm. owned a house on the hillside overlooking the ocean, like really great real estate. He took great care of the house, completely renovated, made it smart. He owned it for three years and then he deployed. He didn't live in it. So he ran his home remotely. Like he ran his sprinkler systems and his security from his phone while he was in Japan. And, um, you know, he just didn't live in it. And then he ended up selling it to someone else in the military. And so that's an example of, um, of just small ways where like in the three years that he was gone, how many families went homeless? We have huge, um, tent communities, homeless populations, and it's illegal for them. We have a sit lie law. So there's only so many places that they can go in the richer communities. It's illegal for them to be on the floor. So then they flush out to different communities mm-hmm. um, and they kind of just 
move around. There's like really nowhere for them to go. And some of them, some of them are homeless vets. Some of them have mental health issues. But if you look at some of them, they're, they're kids going to school. They're, they're people in high school who have, you know, they work really hard to keep their clothes clean. Like you wouldn't know, right. You wouldn't know that they're homeless by looking at them, but they're houseless because they can't afford to save up one month's mm-hmm. rent plus a deposit, you know, and I read a, a statistic that, that 40% of people are one car breakdown or life event away from being homeless. That's mm-hmm. just nationwide, not just here in Hawaii. Um, so I forgot the question, but yeah, you were talking about how this guy in the military ended up selling his home to somebody else in the military. And it's just those those micro decisions that have a lot of impact. Yeah, I don't I mean, and I I don't fully feel aligned with saying like you should sell it to XYZ person. Mm-hmm. Um but there's just so many people coming and going here constantly. And we are like still here. Right. <laughs> We're still here trying to figure things out. Right. And I, it's just kind of disheartening to see so many people coming and going and coming and going. And unless you've been handed a home generationally, right. or, you know, like my friend said, you have generational support. I don't, I don't know what this next generation is going to do to be able to make it here. Hmm. This has been enlightening. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this. Um, It's very important for um, everybody to just have an awareness and a curiosity and a respect for um, everywhere, everywhere that we go and the perspectives that the people that live there have. And I know for you, like, like you've mentioned, it's um, there's a lot of perspectives and opinions in Hawaii of how, how it all, you know, money, tourism, all the things. I've always been a big fan of musical theater, both as a performer and as a spectator. And that's because, well, first of all, of the sheer entertainment value, it's so much fun to be in those kinds of shows and to be watching them. But it's also because I've always noticed that musical theater is an absolute gold mine for all kinds of lessons, from personal to professional, from lessons like grit and resilience to even business in general. It's an absolute gold mine. So for this week's musical theater lesson, I want to talk about The Greatest Showman and specifically the song A Million Dreams. The song opens like this. I close my eyes and I can see the world that's waiting up for me that I call my own. Through the dark, through the door, through where no one's been before, but it feels like home. This song is all about not what your world actually looks like. Bear with me here. It's all about seeing the world and specifically your world, your own environment, your own life, the way you want it. The song continues. They can say, they can say it all sounds crazy. They can say I've lost my mind. I don't care. Call me crazy. We can live in a world that we design. Now, don't get me wrong here. 
There's a lot of circumstances around us that we can't change just by thinking about it. And I get that. Of course, that's true. But there's a lot of things that when we reframe the way that we think about it, we can actually open ourselves up to limitless possibilities and opportunities because we're looking for them and because we are not closed off to them. When we surround ourselves with negativity, people that think negatively, we can get caught in our own negative thinking and then stop looking for opportunity because we've just decided that it doesn't exist. But when we say it is out there, it is for me, I deserve it, I can have it, then we start to see opportunities where we didn't see them before. It's not that suddenly there are more opportunities. It's not that suddenly money is going to grow on trees. But if you tell yourself, I can't make any money, then you're not going to see opportunities to make money. But if you tell yourself, of course I can make money and money is a renewable resource and I can make it anytime I want. Now, money isn't just going to suddenly appear on your doorstep, but you are going to be able to see opportunities to make money when you're able to frame your mind in this way. This song, uh, A Million Dreams, continues on to the next verse, which goes, because every night I lie in bed, the brightest colors fill my head. A million dreams are keeping me awake. I think of what the world could be a vision of the one I see. A million dreams, it's all it's going to take. A million dreams for the world we're going to make. Now listen, there are lots of people out there that are just going to tell you, all you have to do is believe in yourself and then suddenly everything is going to happen for you. And I talk about why this kind of rhetoric really pisses me off and it's all over the place in the industry. But here's where this kinds of this kind of thinking really matters. It's not just about, oh, suddenly if you believe in yourself, then everything becomes easy. It's about reframing the way you perceive the information and the circumstances happening around you. Everything is happening, whether we want it to be happening or not. However, the way that we perceive it can change everything. Money's not going to go on trees. It's not just going to become this, you know, life doesn't just become easy just because we want it to, just because we said, I want life to be easy. But you can completely reframe the way you see things and that allows you to see opportunities where they already were, but you weren't able to see them because of the way that you were thinking. The song goes on. There's a house we can build. Every room inside is filled with things from far away. The special things I compile, each one there to make you smile on a rainy day. Again, into the chorus, they can say it all sounds crazy. They can say we've lost our minds. I don't care if they call us crazy. Run away to a world that we design. Every night I lie in bed. The brightest colors fill my head. A million dreams are keeping me awake. I think of what the world could be, a vision of the one I see. A million dreams it's, is all it's going to take. A million dreams for the world we're going to make. So I want you to ask yourself this. How are you preventing yourself 
from seeing the opportunity that's surrounding you right now? What are you saying to yourself? Are you saying that you're just unlucky? Are you saying that good things don't happen to you? Are you saying that you don't deserve to make a lot of money or money is really, really hard to make? If you're saying all of these things, your brain is not going to be able to see the opportunity that's coming. It's, it's there no matter whether you see it or not. So it's up to you to change the way you're perceiving that information coming in so that you can actually see what's right in front of you because it's in front of you. It's there, whether you want to see it or not. Now, like I said, you're not going to snap your fingers and everything is just going to be fine and dandy and everything is just going to be super easy, but you are going to be able to change the way you perceive the world around you. And that is going to change your life and it's going to change your business. I would love to switch gears because you are also a multiple six-figure, nearing seven-figure business owner. <laughs> and uh, we met in a in our mastermind group for exactly those types of business owners. And um, you run a very high-level, high-touch social media agency. Yes. You work with like seven and eight figure business owners. So tell me a little bit. I I know we've talked about this a little bit, but I would love to hear your origin story, how your business got started. And, uh, you know, I know you were like a very, oh, this is, this is what I'm going to do now. Kind of a, kind yes. of a quick start. So I'd love to hear that, hear that story. Yeah, sure. So just putting it out there that's how I make all of my decisions <laughs> yeah. but um so I my husband and I found out that we were expecting and so we made the choice for me to stay home I was actually the general manager of a construction company at the time and frankly I was really tired of just being mm. surrounded by men all day every day anyways and so this was kind of an easy decision for us my husband makes six figures himself so this seemed like something that should be simple and so um so I did I stopped working when during my pregnancy and then I stayed home to take care of the baby and it was basically that mo a moment when we went grocery shopping and this kind of ties back into our conversation about the cost mm -hmm. of living here in Hawaii. But I realized that my husband was putting our groceries on credit card mm -hmm. and he didn't want to say anything to me because we had, we're very intentional about our choices and our marriage and our family. And when we made the decision, it was a commitment. So he just didn't feel the need to say anything to me because he didn't want to make me feel crappy basically. Right. right. But, um, I realized that that's what he had been doing because even though he made six figures, we were still barely getting by. And, um, you know, we were aside from that credit card out of debt and, um, living a super simple life, there was no gym membership or subscriptions to cut at the time. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to start a business. It just seems like a good time to start a business. And then maybe I can buy groceries and we can stop charging that and like get a leg up. And so that's, that's exactly what it was. Like you said, it was super clumsy. Um, there was no foresight. Um, there never is though, when I do things. And so 
um, I just jumped in and I learned about everything that I could that I felt was relevant, which is really the long way home I've figured out at this point in time. Mm. Um, and what I did as my business evolved was I just started listening to people and figuring out what it was that they needed the most support with. And that's how we ended up with social media management. Um, because it's part, it's part social and relationship building. But the part that we nerd out is like the numbers, the algorithm, like why things are the way they are. What can we do to stay ahead of it? How can we make choices that aren't tied to the algorithm and still do what's best for our clients? And so um, it was really, this business has really been born of a lot of figuring out what the changing landscape looks like and i feel like there's we're headed for some big shifts again with so many people choosing to quit and go remote like i really think the online space is going to be completely different in another year or two but mm -hmm. we just kind of listened to what people needed and evolved to be able to respond to those needs and um because I um, have a hard time doing things casually. So I wanted to learn like everything there was about it and like figure out how to do things in the best way for our clients. We ended up being able to evolve into a really high touch, high level agency. And so that's how we started getting into the space of being able to offer really high level strategy that I was not seeing out there. Mm. I, um, we have a pretty similar philosophy about business and starting a business that there's so many, uh, there's so much noise out there and so many, oh, you need to do this mm -hmm. strategy. You need to do, you know, one, two, three, and you're going to make six figures in 60 days and, and all that kind of messaging. And especially the, the overwhelm of how much it actually, you know, the actual steps that you should take to start a business. And we have a similar philosophy that I'd love to hear you talk about the, you know, like simpler is, is better. Trim it back and just do the things that actually need to get done to move the needle. Yes. And this realization is partly born of me taking the long way home and doing everything like going, this is the, this is the great and bad thing about Googling a business is you get so much yeah. noise in the online space. You're like, oh, but this person has a really successful business and does this. So I must, right. and this person does, you know, also successful does this thing. So I must, and it ends up being this giant impossible list. And so, you know, hustling and getting through that list and getting to a place of profitability, when you take a step back and you look at the things that actually move the needle in the business, it was probably not all the hours that you wasted trying to check that list off. It was, you know, the small things, the building, the relationships, the getting really good at whatever it is that you, that you do. And that's when my, my need for information really helped out was because as the business grew, I was not seeing the strategy that I wanted to see. I spent two solid months interviewing people every single day. I interviewed dozens of people mm. to come to the agency. And when I realized that I was not seeing the level of strategy that I wanted, I just went and um, educated myself on it. And so that's mm -hmm. now what I do. I partner with somebody else. She's, I, I now do have a strategist on the team and we partner together on the analytics, but, um, it was a big gap in the market. And that's something that 
I think is going to continue until there's more education out there for social media managers, because so many people are rocking the social media game right now organically. Like they're just mm. like these people that are coming up. My daughter, my 17 year old, like they're just so tuned into the online space because they have the time to consume it and, and know what's working and what's trending. And if they, if you simply just replicate what's trending, you're going to do really well right now. Um, but if you're a business owner, you do not have time to look at what's trending all the time and like consume, 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 you have to build your business and make your money and then go and, you know, live your life. And so that's why I think it was so hard for me to find someone to fill that gap. Uh, and that's where my, my time and attention goes. And then we have the team to do other things, but being able to step into that and up leveling and elevating the level of service that we were give allowed mm-hmm. us to serve people in a larger capacity. We give more holistic services. Uh, we can offer white glove done for you services because we take it off of their plate completely. Our clients do not worry about social media. They do not even have it on their phones. Sometimes they just don't even want to hear about it, but they know that there's growth and they know that there's leads coming in because we show them the, the stats every month. Mm-hmm. And this shows that one, it's, it's a really about first getting very good at what it is that you want to do and like just diving in, just figuring out what it is that people need and how to, how to meet that need with your services in a way that's very unique and, and personalized to you. And then building those relationships to find people who might be able to use your services. Mm-hmm. In the so that's the strip back version. Um, and also how we did it in the agency. Yeah. Most of my, um, well, my entire design agency was in the beginning, all networking and word of mouth and, and referral. And I know you grew a lot from that as well. And advice that I give to, to people now getting started, especially when it's all virtual, because I actually did a lot of in-person networking events. I went to like every networking event that I could possibly go to in person. And it was always those times where I was like, I really don't want to go, but I'm going to go anyway. Those were always the times that resulted in, you know, somebody, a relationship or a client relationship or something happening that moved my business forward. So if you can go to in-person events, I always say do that because there's nothing that can replace a face-to-face you know, in terms of like building trust and and that likability factor, there's nothing that can replace that face to face. But Mm -hmm. I also always give the advice, just show up where the people that you want to talk to are showing up. And a lot Mm -hmm. of the time that's a Facebook group that is like a a, a niche or really specific, a group that has a certain kind of people. And if you just give a lot of value, if you comment on things, answer questions, ask pointed questions and things like that, that's going to result in some relationship building. Mm -hmm. But you work with seven and eight figure entrepreneurs. And you made a great point recently that seven and eight figure entrepreneurs don't hang out in Facebook groups. Mm -hmm. They hang out with each other. They do. Yes. They exactly do. Yes. Yeah. So, and I know that, I mean, even in the mastermind group that we're both in, right. It's everybody is hiring each other. You know, there's, there's, Mm -hmm. we have a woman that does it has an inbound marketing agency. There's lots of us that have hired her. 
you know, people have had me do their websites. We're just sort of, it becomes very incestuous, this group all hanging out together. <laughs> yeah. So if somebody wants to reach somebody like that, how in the hell do we enter that group before we're even a six-figure entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that how much money you make doesn't really it's not a metric for mm. your level of value. Right. And so that's why it has, it's not one of the things that I really stress that people do just build the relationships and get really good at what you offer. Because as you network, like you were saying, and as your name gets passed around, it gets in front of more people. So that's actually, we, we don't market our business at this point in time. We are referral based only, which is kind of evidence of what, what it is that we're talking about. But there are also large businesses and, and business owners who still look for people on LinkedIn, um, particular Facebook groups that are geared towards just looking for talent. Um, if you're on their email list, that's another place that I know a lot of people will will look first. They'll put out a we're hiring because they want people who are already engaged and invested in their business. And so that's another way to kind of spin being where people that you want to serve are. Like if there are people out there that you want to serve, you should know about their business. You should mm -hmm. know about that industry. So you should be subscribing to their email list. You should be following them. You should be seeing there. And I get, I get a lot of people who say that they've been cold pitched and I don't think it's a terrible idea. What I see mm. people doing though, like I've been spammed with this a few times as people say, Hey, this is what you're doing wrong on social media. I can help. And I don't know if I love that approach mm. by like just pointing out inefficiencies for people and then saying that you can help them. But if you can finesse that and it's not about pointing out the inefficiencies that I think is successful. I think it's the promise of being able to elevate someone's business. Right. And that is what you have to be all about. And if you have built your relationships and improved your services and continue to improve your services, then this is not a problem for you. So when you do end up in front of somebody, either by word of mouth at a networking event, or you see that there's an opportunity to join their team, when you do end up in front of somebody like that, you catch their eye. And mm -hmm. you know, to your point of where these people hang out, you just need to catch the right person's eye. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I did. We, I ended up um, catching the right person's eye. I did a couple weeks of um, some paid work and stuff like that, but really it was just me being able to communicate that what their needs were, I could meet. Mm -hmm. My efficiencies, the things that I still needed to learn about was not going to be a problem because I'm happy to do it. I'm always up leveling, you know, my expertise anyways. And it just so happened that that person, and she was looking through very um, traditional methods also is her email list, her LinkedIn and a Facebook page um, that's mm -hmm. dedicated to um, professional business owners hiring. And so um, it was really just about communicating the value that I was able to offer and then always showing up with it. And on the back end, if there was something I didn't know, I just figured it out. I went and I found out so that it was never a loss to the client. Um, I think we have a lot of rhetoric as business owners where we have to build the business of our dreams. 
And we have to make sure that we are creating the boundaries in our business. And I wholeheartedly believe in these things. But as a service provider, you're also responsible to help your clients build the business of their dreams. Right. And it's not their responsibility to be okay with you not knowing things. Sometimes you need to go on, if it's within your purview, mm-hmm. go figure it out. It's not a big deal. <laughs> I, I, I love that so much because I agree with you. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of rhetoric, like say no to everything. And, and don't reply to emails after five o'clock and things like that. And, and that's all, that's all fair, right? If you don't want to reply to emails or, or whatever it is that, that you're comfortable with, but there's also so much that you kind of just, you're the service provider, you're the expert and you gotta, you gotta do the thing, right? You you just Mm -hmm. have to kind of, and the say no to everything, I think, especially in the beginning, you should actually say yes to everything. Agreed. every single opportunity that comes your way, even if you don't want to, right? Like I talk about the times I didn't want to go to a networking event, but when I went, it was, it resulted in some kind of a relationships, a client or something happening that, that moved the needle in my business, especially in the beginning. And that I, we've talked about this a lot, that there's a, there's a lot out there, especially the mindfulness and the self-care kind of conversation is important. And I don't want to, I don't want to tell anybody to go out there and make themselves sick with, with working themselves to the bone, but there is a time to, to do those things to, you know, be working late hours and say yes to everything. And to your point, going out and just figuring it out. Yes. I feel like this is a whole nother conversation that every single person who is starting a business needs to hear. (laughs) But we are all working towards building the business of our dreams. But if, again, you're a service provider and you're in the business of building someone else's dream Mm -hmm. business for them or partnering with them on it, which is what we are actually doing as service providers. Yep. um, We are both running a service with the scope of work and partnering with someone and co-creating their daydream basically. So mm-hmm. there's a responsibility that comes with that. And I don't think it can be overstated that in the beginning you should say yes. Like mm-hmm. say yes to the things that you might want to align with or that you even yeah. can do. Cause in the beginning you're just gonna go make money. Go make some money. Yep. Know what it's like to make your own money, not get paid on someone else's dime not Mm -hmm. depend on someone else for a paycheck, how you manage that money, pay some taxes. As you get more money, the taxes get more painful. Mm -hmm. So you need to figure that out. So just get out there and make money. And what that's going to do is it's going to show what it looks like to make money as a Mm -hmm. business owner. If this is new to you, um, or if you just haven't been making money because you've been trying to align with things. And two, you're going to learn who you want to work with and who you don't want to work with. And that's, those are both equally valuable lessons that you cannot really learn until you experience it sometimes. Um, People niche down and it's great, but if you don't actually live it, it, you can't articulate why that's who you do and don't want to serve until you actually know for a fact. And then when you identify who you do want to serve, because you said yes to all these people, um, a lot of them aren't going to be wholehearted yeses and no's. Mm -hmm. You're going to... 
I itemize like what it is about that relationship and that that worked that didn't work out for you. And you're going to know what kind of pitfalls come with your ideal client and exactly how to serve them. And if you take it a step further, what you should be doing is figuring out how to avoid them for your client, how to, how to speak for them. So saying yes to things that you don't always want to say yes to allows you to put guardrails in place so that you can protect yourself and your ideal clients in the future. And, um, I don't think that you get to do like, ideally to me, you're never going to get to do a hundred percent of things you love. You're never going to be a hundred percent in your zone of genius because business is so diverse. But when you get to a certain dollar amount, that's when you start getting, hitting, getting closer to that 80% zone of genius, 20% zone of competence. Maybe Mm -hmm. do not do your zone of incompetence if you can avoid it. Mm -hmm. But, um, you get to that point because then you have the resources to outsource the things that aren't in your zone of genius and excellence. Mm -hmm. So until you get to that point, you're going to have to have a whole lot of work ethic, suck it up, hustle. I don't know what people are calling it nowadays, but like you just got to jump in and do it. Mm -hmm. And then you'll get there a lot faster than I think people think. Yeah. And to your point too, you know, zone of genius and, and all that stuff. I, started my web design agency because someone thought that I was just this young person that knew all things tech. I didn't correct them. And so when they said, Hey, I need a website. Can you do it? I was just like, um, sure can. <laughs> yeah, I love I, that. <laughs> absolutely. I can. And that started as my zone of incompetence. I did not know how to design a website. And now it's my zone of genius because yeah. I said yes. Yeah. Because I was just like, eh, fuck it. I don't know. I got to make money. Yeah. So sure. Sure. I can just be, I can, uh, I can fulfill the role of the know all things tech young person for you and mm-hmm. I'll just fake it. And now I've, you know, fake it till you make it, fake it till you become it. I faked being a web designer until that actually became my zone of genius. Yeah. Yes. I w- I think that that's just your work ethic. Like if you mm. hate taxes and you don't like numbers, yeah. don't say yes. Like if it's not even right. something that's in your realm of possibility, don't say yes. If right. just because you can doesn't mean you should. But like in your <laughs> in your example, like if you say no because you're like I'm not aligned or I'm not an mm-hmm. expert yet, like you wouldn't have the business that you have today. Yep. Yeah, that's powerful. Like we're in this, we're what gen, what is our gen X or whatever? I don't even know. But we're like (laughs) in between the blue collar work ethic parents. Yeah, right. Also, we have crystals and burnt sage. I don't even know. Like, yeah, I know. I know. I am. I don't know about you, but I am solidly a millennial. I am. I am right in the middle of the millennial generation. Listen, I might be a little bit older than you then because I think I'm in like the four years that is like in between. In between. Yeah. I still have, I'm still on in the middle. Like I remember dial up internet, right? Like we didn't have a computer in the house for, you know, for my childhood, like things like that. So I'm, I'm in the middle of, of that as well, but I have, you know, my, my father who was the, um, you know, you have to work, work, work. And, and the long hours that you put in are, are sort it's, you know, not that he ever said or defined like, I, 
my hard work is proven by the long hours that I'm putting in, but it was always sort of unsaid. It was always sort of this like, oh, your father works very hard, so he's going to be home late tonight, you know, that that kind of thing. Um, to then now sort of beginning with the millennials and now even more so with the Gen Z, the like, everything must be peaceful. Everything yeah. must be like... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it. so funny to see my daughter. She's like growing up into this digital digital world. I'm like, okay, it was a big deal when Oregon Trail came out. But she's Ooh, like this Oregon is Trail. Everything that she knows is digital. And so these things that are so instinctual for her, I'm like, okay, wait, get back on and show me how you did that. Or do the YouTube, yep. TikTok, whatever you did to show me. Um, but I'm also learning how to show work ethic to her like okay these are so easy and readily available for you how are you going to spin this into an asset yep for someone else like how are you gonna make this worth my time you have the skill great how are you gonna help me with it yep and so that's what i kind of meant by being between the two um generations and i just assumed you were because you have like that that really blue collar level work ethic that i think is so important and will Mm -hmm. always be really important business Business is never always going to be just about who you know. It, I mean, in, in the world of influencers, it is hugely about who you know, but there's still so much yeah. work that goes on in the back end, especially if you want a sustainable business. And no, listen, I mean, look at our, right? Like I look at the women in our mastermind group that are all women that have six and seven figure businesses and are looking to scale even further beyond that. And, and in the room, like I talk about, we're sort of incestuous. We're all hiring each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we had to have that business before we entered the room where now we're using all of each other's brains and each other's businesses and, and skills to grow our own businesses. Now we're in that room using that, but we had to actually have the six figure business to be invited into this group in the first place. So mm-hmm. You actually have to put in the work and then all the relationships grow, whether you're an influencer or, or not, you actually have to have the business and have the the groundwork put in. So you actually have something to show for yourself, right? Like, oh, here's the, here's the education I've done for myself. And now here's the strategy as the social media manager that I can offer you in your seven figure business, because I know what the fuck I'm talking about. And I've put the work in not just because you know me, right? Even a seven figure business, just because they know you, if you, they don't, if you don't know what you're talking about, they don't care, right? They're, yeah. they're not interested in you unless you know what you're talking about. And then the relationship helps. Yeah. And this goes back to getting to a level in business where you outsource your zones of incompetence. Mm-hmm. Like you can't ask somebody to spend more time in their zones of incompetence or even competence. If they're trying to spend more time in their zone of genius and they have the resources to outsource it, you have to be that resource for them. You have mm-hmm. to be... And that's why I always say we're a partner in someone's business because you have to be that missing link for them so that they can go do whatever it is that they want to do. You are partnering in the success of their business. And that's a, there's gravity in that, that I think it's lost sometimes when we're like juggling hours and, and making sure we have boundaries and self-care and all of that is super important so that you don't burn out mm-hmm. and that you can provide a good service. But like, listen, if you're in a service-based business and even some yeah. products, like you are partnering in the success of someone else's business. And so you gotta, you don't have to know everything, but you gotta show up. Yep. Sarah, you're amazing. 
You're brilliant. And I really appreciate this conversation and you taking the time to chat with me. What time is it for you now? Like 11 o'clock? Yep. 11.25. Oof. (laughs) (laughs) You're just starting your day. I'm just ending mine. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me though. I kind of think you're like my twin flame in business. Same. Same. The conversations we've had every time we we chat in our in our groups, I'm like, yeah, preach. Say it again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love it. Okay. So um what is your website and where can people find you? It's the simpleflourish.com. Okay. Flourish like flourishing plants, not a florist who sells flowers. <laughs> Flourish. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and the same on Instagram, right? The Simple Flourish on Instagram. Yep. Same. Amazing. Amazing. You're wonderful. And I am so grateful for this conversation and having met you in the first place. Thank you for having me and for having these conversations. 